Hello gamers and welcome back to episode 19 of Gamer's Guide to Ecology. I'm your host, Jesse D, an open world RPG gamer with a master's degree in ecology and evolution. I play popular open world RPGs and review them from an ecological perspective. This month I'm playing Pokemon Legends Arceus. On today's episode, I'll be talking about the ecology and evolutionary theory in the Pokemon franchise. I'll also talk about what makes Arceus unique in the franchise and why I think this game is one of the best ever. Pokemon Legends Arceus was recently published on Nintendo Switch on January 28, 2022 by Game Freak. Pokemon as a franchise has been around for nearly 30 years, with the first installments and generation of the game being released in Japan in 1996 as Red and Green. Since the original versions on Game Boy, Game Freak has amassed 38 main games and quite a few Mystery Dungeon, Snap, and other spin-off games as well. There is a Pokemon World Championship hosted every year that's an exclusive invite-only event with the competitors battling against each other's prized Pokemon. The popular game series is also a card game, and you don't have to look far to find numerous Pokemon merchandise like plushies, toys, t-shirts, bags, and other collectibles. The franchise is now multi-generational, with people that grew up playing the original games now having kids and getting their kids into the newer games and merchandise. Easily one of the most successful video game dynasties ever, Pokemon is probably near, if not at the top. People that battle Pokemon are called trainers, and you start every main game as a young kid that sets out on some kind of quest or journey. The quintessential parts of any main series Pokemon game are 1. To be given your first Pokemon by a professor in the region, 2. Be tasked with collecting them all to fill out what's called a Pokedex and reporting back with your findings, and 3. Battling Pokemon against other people. There are so far 8 distinct regions in which Pokemon games take place. These regions are Kanto, Johto, Hoenn, Sinnoh or Hisui, Unova, Kalos, Alola, and Galar. Each region comes with its own unique set of Pokemon which have become known as Generations. The original first generation of Pokemon took place in the Kanto region and consisted of 151 Pokemon. There is some crossover between regions with some common Pokemon being more widespread instead of just being found in one particular region. Now there are 8 generations and 905 Pokemon. The game begins with your character falling out of a space-time rift into the Hisui region, which is later called Sinnoh. You fall into a time where settlers have just arrived in this region and begun to build a town called Jubilee Village. This game takes place in the past, so in other games this village is known as Jubilee City. As with other main games, you're given a choice between starter Pokemon. You can choose between Rowlet, Cyndaquil, or Oshawott, which are notably from different generations and regions. 
You're allowed to pick one of these Pokemon to accompany you by the local professor, who in this game is called Professor Laventon, and set out on a quest to fill the professor's Pokedex. The Pokedex is the Professor's Love Project. It's a collection of in-depth information on every Pokemon found in the Hisui region. It has a brief description about the behavior of the Pokemon and details important information like the Pokemon's habitat, where it can be found in certain areas, and during which weather conditions and time of day it can appear. It also details each Pokemon's height, weight, preferred foods, and items they sometimes carry. This game reveals that the Pokedex is not a new, or as we scientists call it, novel invention by Professor Oak in Pallet Town, but was actually invented by Professor Laventon in Hisui many years prior. Perhaps Professor Oak was really laying claim to the piece of technology on which the Pokedex information was stored, since Professor Laventon's version is paper-based. Once you set out on your own, you'll find that you can easily switch between throwing items like berries and Pokeballs. You can use berries and other food to lure or distract Pokemon, and then attempt to catch them with a Pokeball. You have a better chance to catch a Pokemon if it doesn't see you, and an even better chance to catch it if you hit it in the back. If a Pokemon spots you and it starts to attack, you can throw mud at it to stun it. While it's stunned, you can quickly try catching it. You can also throw your Pokemon out into the world to help you. You'll need to use your Pokemon to harvest certain crafting materials. This game has a minor crafting component to it. You'll have to craft items until you earn enough money to be able to regularly afford your adventuring lifestyle, but you can always sell items you find out in Hisui. Remember, this is before Pokemarts and Pokemon Centers, so there aren't very many places for you to stock up on potions and Pokeballs at first. This game takes place before gyms and the Pokemon League exist. In fact, trainer battles are rare in this game. Instead, the main story involves soothing, raging Pokémon called Lords. These Lords are culturally important figures in the region to the two indigenous clans of Hisui, the Diamond Clan and the Pearl Clan. The main story doesn't take all that long to complete if you rush through it with the same party of six Pokémon, but there are also a lot of side missions and villager requests that you can take on. When you complete side requests, you can earn item rewards. Much like other open-world games that offer side quests, it's very easy to veer left immediately into tall grass and never look back. This is an open-world Pokemon game, although it's not a true open-world game like Red Dead Redemption 2. I'd say that it's pretty similar to, but maybe a step up from, Monster Hunter Rise. Jubilee Village is the central meeting place where you can regroup before going out to catch wild Pokemon. You get your missions and most of your side quests from people in the village too. One of the first things that you'll notice about this game is that there is still a divide between Pokemon and people. The villagers need your help to show them that Pokemon are not scary monsters. From Jubilee Village, you can travel to five areas within Hisui. These areas are open world maps that initially can't be fully explored. Once you complete main story missions, you unlock access to certain Pokemon that can help you traverse the landscape more easily and more completely. You can surf, gallop, climb, or fly across map features with ease once you have access to all of them. Your character can also run and dodge, and this is because wild Pokemon will attack your character. That's right, even if all your Pokemon faint, you might not. Your character will only black out if they take enough damage from wild Pokemon attacks or fall from a great height. So if all your Pokemon faint while battling a tough wild Pokemon, you still have a chance to get away. But if your character faints, you will drop some items you are carrying. 
This brings me to a new feature in the game called Lost and Found. Every time you faint, your location and lost items are logged, and someone else out there playing Arceus can find it for you, as long as you're connected to the internet. When they find it, your items are returned to you, and when you find other people's lost satchels, you'll sometimes be rewarded with an item, but you will always get some merit points. Merit points, or MP, are a new type of currency in this game that you can use to buy evolutionary stones and other items that you can use to evolve certain Pokemon. Since Hisui is actually the Sinnoh region, almost all of the Pokemon in this game are familiar to fans of the series. There are only really five new Pokemon in the game, and they're all evolutions of previous Pokemon. So in terms of Pokemon biodiversity, you don't have to memorize a hundred new creatures. Some Pokemon look a bit different as their regional variants. Regional variants were introduced in Gen 7, and if you played Sun and Moon or Sword and Shield, you'll know about Alolan and Galarian regional variants and how they look different from their counterparts in other regions. Regional variants are a fantastic example of an evolutionary concept called phenotypic variation. A phenotype is what something looks or acts like, and variation is any difference between individuals of the same species. Phenotypic variation among individuals of the same species within a population results from the combined effects of genetics and the environment. Phenotypic variation is such an important concept in evolution because it's what natural selection works on. Take, for instance, Alolan Vulpix and the regular red Vulpix. Everywhere except in Alola, Vulpix are red. Why are Alolan Vulpix white? Well, Alolan Vulpix are found on and nearby Mount Lanakila, which is a snow-covered mountain. It makes sense for Alolan Vulpix to be white as a form of camouflage, because a red Vulpix would stand out against the snow. The phenotypic variation in Vulpix doesn't just stop at color. Alolan Vulpix are also ice-type Pokémon instead of the usual fire-type. This also makes sense because they live on a cold, icy mountain. They have different behaviors from red Vulpix that help them survive in their environment. The regional variants in Hisui are less easily explained. For example, there's a Hisuian Growlithe that looks like someone dumped a tub of whipped cream on its head. I struggle to find the evolutionary advantage or driving force of selection that led to that. But that's the funny thing about evolution. Every once in a while, something changes that's neither beneficial nor detrimental for the organism, and the trait just sticks around. Like, that just means we don't know enough yet to explain it. It might be a trait that came about through artificial selection, which is when humans decide they like a certain trait in a plant or an animal, and they select for it through breeding. That's how we ended up with so many kinds of dogs. And tomatoes. This game shows Pokemon in the overworld. This is a cool feature for shiny hunters, since you don't need to initiate a battle with a Pokemon to know whether or not it's shiny. Instead, you can see the sparkles out in the open. A neat thing about showing the Pokemon as is in the overworld means that you can see the size differences between Pokemon. You can see very small Badoo in a meadow, and then around the next corner you might run into a Gargantuan Steelix. Or if two Geodude are next to each other, one will be a little bit larger than the other. Even more, there are tougher, larger Pokemon in the world called Alphas that are much bigger than usual. What's funny is you can even run into Alpha Starly, Alpha Badoo, Alpha Wormpole, and all those other usually weak ones. 
Pokemon has always had ecology in it, you just might not have noticed before. As with previous games, some Pokemon can be rare, where you only have a very small chance to encounter them in an area. The number of individuals of a species in an area is called its abundance. Usually this is measured relative to all the other species in an area. That's what they do in Pokemon games when they say that you have a 1% chance of encountering, say, a Clefairy in a given area, versus a 50% chance of encountering a Zubat. Essentially, these predicted encounter rates are a Pokemon species' relative abundance in that area. Pokemon also covers the idea of habitat really well, because you can only find some species in certain areas and in certain conditions. Remember back to the Red Dead Redemption 2 episode when I talked about anthropogenic disturbances and habitat loss? Now imagine what kinds of disruptions building Jubilee Village is having on the habitats of many Pokemon in the area. All the more reason to get out there and complete the Pokedex so that Professor Laventon can understand the impacts better. You're doing important survey work just like ecologists do in real life. In terms of a classification system, the Pokemon games use a type system to classify Pokemon into groups. Pokemon have at least one type from a possible 18 that include fire, water, ice, ground, rock, and more. This is an interesting classification system that is based on behaviors and abilities rather than physical characteristics or appearance. We've seen a classification system like this in The Witcher 3 game, which classified monsters based on behavioral traits. This is in contrast to Subnautica and Red Dead Redemption 2 systems of classifying animals based on what they look like. It's clear that more study is needed to properly classify Pokemon, because professors from different regions can't seem to agree on what number to give Pokemon, and they keep changing the order that they appear in the Pokedex. When it comes to evolution, Pokemon puts in a pretty good effort. In the games, evolution is when Pokemon change from one form to another. There are no Pokemon born at higher forms in the evolutionary tree. All Pokemon start out as the lowest evolution, and the transition part of Pokemon evolution happens almost immediately. So this is not really evolution, it's more of a metamorphosis. The reason Pokemon evolution is not true evolution is because in real life evolution occurs over a very long period of time in very small steps. Not only that, but when offspring are born, they're always the same species as the parents, or some kind of hybrid. You might know about metamorphosis from a caterpillar turning into a chrysalis and then into a butterfly, or from a tadpole becoming a frog. There's actually a good example of complete metamorphosis in Pokemon Legends Arceus, with Wurmple turning into Silcoon and Beautifly, or Cascoon and Dustox. This evolutionary trajectory of Wurmple, based on hidden encoded values, is very similar to what we see in some insects in real life. Ants and some bees, for instance, are predestined to become the next generation of the reproductive caste, while others are predestined to become workers. This predestination is determined by their genetics and the hormones that they get as they age. Just like a queen ant cannot become a worker ant, Beautifly cannot become a dust ox. So if Pokemon are not actually evolving, but rather just metamorphosizing, does that mean that most Pokemon are insects? And if so, why are there not more bug-type Pokemon? Arceus also offers harvestable plants in addition to the berries previously mentioned, although these plants and berries are only for crafting or feeding to Pokemon. 
You can feed 13 types of berries to your party Pokemon to heal them of status effects or restore their HP or PP, or throw plants and berries to lure and feed wild Pokemon. The dozen or so non-berry plants and fungi are mostly used for crafting. Once you unlock portions of the garden, you can farm the in-game plants in Jubilee Village rather than hunting for them in the wild. It's cool to see berries growing in full-blown trees in the wild in this game, though, since I always assumed that most berries were introduced species. The berries in Hisui are probably later domesticated, since in many other main Pokemon games, they grow only on small bushes. So I want to talk about some of my gripes that I have with not only this game, but Pokemon in general. First of all, an interesting thing to observe in this game is the immediate willingness of wild Pokemon to assist humans in their daily tasks, like farming, construction, and security patrols. It's obviously a fictional world, but I think it would be pretty dangerous to train a Graveler to till your field for you. Another interesting thing to note is that there are no non-Pokemon animals in this game, or any other Pokemon game. Cows are Miltanks, cats are Glammeow, dogs are Growlithe, flocks of birds are made up of Pidgey and Starly. What doesn't really make sense to me is that there are regular plants in this game alongside plant-like grass-type Pokemon. Similarly, there are no regular insects, but there are bug-type Pokemon. This makes me wonder, are there unseen bacteria or microscopic Pokemon that recycle nutrients from decaying organic matter? From an ecological perspective, only having macroscopic organisms would not be sufficient to recycle nutrients fully, and there would likely be a lot of competition between species for habitat space, nesting sites, and food resources. I also think designers could have done a better job of depicting more Pokemon with symbiotic relationships. Symbiosis is when two organisms of different species live in close proximity for a long period of time. This relationship can benefit or be detrimental to one of the organisms, or be beneficial for both. As an example, Shelder bites Slowpoke to feed off of its tail, which makes Slowpoke evolve into Slowbro. Shelder gets all of the benefit from this relationship, and Slowbro has to deal with toxins that prevent it from feeling pain. So this is an example of a parasitic relationship. If both Pokémon benefit from the relationship, it's called mutualistic. And if one benefits and the other neither benefits nor is harmed, the relationship is called commensal. Symbiotic relationships are quite interesting in real life. One of my personal favorites are the crabs that pick up sea anemones and wear them around on their backs for protection. That's a mutualistic relationship because the crab gets protection and the anemone can filter more food out of the water while the crab forages, sometimes getting scraps that drift up while the crab is eating. Something that disappoints me in this game a little bit was that your buddy Pokemon doesn't run along behind you. I found this disappointing because I loved Heart Gold, where you can have any Pokemon follow along behind you while you adventure and explore. But the feature where you can bring out all six Pokemon with you at the same time and then chat with them is actually really cute, so I forgive them. Lastly, a point that I think would make the game better is seeing more non-battling Pokemon behaviors. When you bring out a Pokemon in front of you, you can watch a few of their behaviors and interactions with each other, but they don't move from where you placed them. And if you watch the Pokemon in the pastures, they don't move either. I'd really like to see some more social interactions among wild Pokemon. 
maybe some territorial displays or cute courtship behaviors. Which reminds me, where's the daycare? I'll be right back. I'm going to go Masuda method with a different language ditto. I cannot overstate how much I love this game. I've been waiting for a Pokemon game like this ever since I first discovered open world gaming, and it's a much needed shakeup for a franchise that some people say have basically just released the same game for 25 years. I think the game is beautiful, the weather is seamless, the Pokemon designs are sleek, the story is fun and fresh. I just can't say enough about this game, I give it 5 star you out of 5. Pokemon Legends Arceus is an RPG adventure game that lets you choose what you like out of the Pokemon games. Side missions, shiny hunting, living decks, battling if you want it, disappearing into the wilderness and not surfacing until you run out of Pokeballs. It's got it all. Heck, if completing the Pokedex and catching them all is not enough for you, there's even another collectible mission you can do to collect a hundred some odd wisps around Hisui. Thanks for sticking around and listening today. If you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening and download new episodes as they come out. Follow me on Twitter at DahanJ and let me know what you think of the show. You can support the podcast on Patreon at Scientific Canada and your support means that I can buy more open world and RPG games and keep making episodes about in-game ecology. Good game, everyone. Podcast art is by Lara LeBlanc, and theme music is called Rain Song by Brett Eagleston. You can hear more of his music at bretteagleston.bandcamp.com.